That's a powerful song, and if you slow down, you really slow down and read those lyrics, how powerful they are. If you really think about them, and it's stuff that we got to think about too, how powerful, like, especially when he wrote that, just think of what he was saying, <laughs> you know, around the people that he was saying it. So wonderful, wonderful word, and, you know, it's coming into Reformation Day, you know, that's one of my favorite holidays that I want to see more of celebrated, um, but coming down into it, you know, that's uh, the word did everything, Martin Luther did nothing, but still Martin Luther was a means to continue the growth of the word of God, and so every time I read those lyrics, it's very awesome, very encouraging, and um, just love it, and again, just how powerful it is, but before we get into tonight, just let's pray um, over the word of God, so. Father, we come to you tonight. We love you. We adore you. You are king above all things. Your kingdom is wonderful, and uh, we are just happy that we are wonderful participants in that because of your son, that uh, you have adopted us, and that you have granted us the repentance to come into your kingdom to enjoy now the benefits that uh, we will see uh, in the future especially when you come again and we know what the future is already like and we can work that out. And so I pray that you just bless this word tonight. It's your word. It's not my word. And it's especially a word that was written down by men who are guided by the Holy Spirit. And uh, we can trust it for it is true and powerful. And so I pray tonight that uh, things can be heard, things can uh, be uh, repented from if need be, and that you continue your mission to change our lives, which then changes the world around us. And uh, we know that that is sure and true. We thank you for this in your precious name. Amen, Jesus. All right. Well, guys, thank you for having me back. Joe keeps me on his mind, and uh, he asked me all the time, and I had some time to definitely come and help you out. And, you know, amidst the troubles that you guys go through with the, you know, just that your pastor goes through, um, you know, like praying for him, praying. I've always been praying for you guys. And I drive by and uh, say prayers for you, not knowing what's going on, but knowing that God knows. And so thank you guys for letting, letting me come see you and allowing me to just bring a little bit of my study um, to you guys. Um, this is helping me out too as I continue to pursue uh, certain forms of ministry that I do. Um, like, yeah, I love you guys. That's why I'm here. Um, I can't say that enough. But uh, tonight, um, bringing something into you because I'm getting ready to have a, a debate. You guys know I do debates. You know that I'm part of the Missouri Baptist Apologetics Network. And I'm going into a, the, a debate um, just before the annual meeting up in St. Charles, Missouri. And we're going to be talking about what does the Bible say about end times. Um, so I was trying to think like, man. Joe's asking me pretty quick. I've only got time for one. What am I going to talk about? Because, I, I mean, there's so much to talk about, right? And I was like, well, I can just bring, you know, in my study. Hey, Larry, how you doing? Everybody, this is Larry. He's another fellow Redeemerite with my boys and that girl over there, too. They're Redeemers uh, folks, too. So we're all family together. This is wonderful. So thanks for all coming. But anyway, uh, going into this debate, talking about what this Bible says about end times, where I and three other brothers in the network are going to discuss that proposition um, from different uh, eschatological views. And so I was going to bring that in since that's my study and uh, hopefully lift you guys up in this and uh, bring you um, the word uh, about it. But uh, 
when we think about eschatology, we've got to understand that everybody has one. Believer, unbeliever, we all have an eschatology, which is just a big word for last things, a word about last things. And so this simply means that it is a view on what's to come of the order of all of this. What is the end goal? Everybody has a goal. Everybody has an end in mind. And they appeal to some sort of standard to be able to opine and conversate about it, right? And so that's what I want to talk about tonight. Um, so um, I know that's almost everybody and their mom in the kitchen sink even comes out to, see, to hear about end times. But it's only a peripheral, per- peripheral issue in the text. Um, it's an issue to talk about for sure. But that's um, what I want to get into because um, if you guys want to go ahead and turn with your Bibles, if you use the Pew Bibles, it's 1056. I did the, uh, the, uh, the Irvin thing to do by checking out what page number in the Pew Bibles it was for you guys. I'm bringing in the old school stuff for you guys. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, turn to uh, 2 Timothy 3 while I'm doing this. But uh, by way of introduction, Paul says in chapter 1, verse 7, says that we have been given a spirit of power, of love, and sound judgment, not fear. This is the theme of the whole letter, the reason that Paul is sending this to Timothy, and so therefore, this is the theme for our discussion tonight. So therefore, I do want to take an approach with you guys that I learned from another uh, pastor that I like to read his stuff. His name is Pastor Douglas Wilson. And I want to ask you for some levity tonight. I want you guys to suspend your disbelief a little bit tonight, okay? So even if we don't end up agreeing 100%, it's okay, because we have unity right here in the scriptures, as Timothy talks about, right? We have the scriptures, the God-breathed scriptures. We can use them to exhort, rebuke, correct one another in love as brothers and sisters. And so... That's what I want to get into tonight because I want to present something that does go against the grain of popular belief. And I want to rightfully divide the word and not you guys. I want to facilitate deep study and conversation among brothers and sisters as ones who bear in love with one another and to edify you saints in Christ. So this is the goal because what may be a proof text For a cataclysmic dark end of things is not that. I want to demonstrate that one of of many passages that leads many to fear for the future actually leads us to hope in the future. But it's more about what we should be doing now, what should be going on now because of what was going on then and instructed then. And this is because of covenantal continuity, as I will get into but that wonderful sermon in a sentence, if you guys remember that from Tyler and, and Jason Gunter. And I've utilized that before, but my sermon in a sentence, if you're taking notes, please take notes too. This is um, something wonderful because there's going to be some things to write down to take home, hopefully again, to facilitate that conversation and study among you guys. But uh, the sermon in a sentence, you know, I want you to understand three instructions here from Paul to Timothy, two explicit and one implicit so the sermon is sentence, avoid, hope, continue, because they will progress no further. So as we get into this text, we need to understand a little bit about Timothy, 2 Timothy, this letter. And it's the second letter from Paul to Timothy with three main functions. 
Firstly, it's to give fatherly encouragement and instruction to Timothy, who Paul took to himself to train with the other apostles laying on of hands, to commission as a continuing minister of the gospel, especially when it comes to Ephesus, the local body that he was serving at the time and the problems that was going on with them. And that's evidenced in both the letters. Secondly, it's to encourage Timothy not to fear, reminding him of the gospel and his duties as a minister who has been given the spirit of power, love, and sound judgment. And thirdly, it's to ask Timothy to come to him quickly because at the time of this writing, he was on trial, he was awaiting trial, and this time he was not going to, like, he was not confident of being released and leaving. He was actually ready to die. And so he is telling Timothy, come to me soon. I want to pray for you. I want to see you. I have been deserted. I have nobody with me, and I need you, Timothy. That's why he's writing it. And if you look in chapter 4, 16 and 18, that's where it talks about this. So therefore, therefore, this is a farewell is nigh letter of where Paul continues to set the pattern, practicing what he preaches as he tells Timothy in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, to commit this to faithful men, which is another key issue to deal with his talking to Timothy. And he's supposed to commit this teaching to faithful men, the teaching of the gospel, so that they will instruct others who will do the same, which you can really call Great Commission eldership for a Great Commission church. And then to continue this work according to the word and the power of God. And so when we think about both 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, Paul does this by repeating in 2 Timothy a lot what he had already said in the first letter. But unlike 1 Timothy, which, yes, it was concerned about Timothy, it was concerned about the whole church in Ephesus, this time he's focused in on Timothy because he cares for him, and so it's about himself. And he says, do not fear Timothy. This is the theme. So, for brevity, I can go along. This is a lot of text. We're not going to read the text and then get into it. So, follow along with me as we go through the text. Let's work in here. So, I want to um, start uh, digging into a little bit of issue that I want to deal with, and then we'll definitely walk through the text. But let's uh, think about whenever we first open up Timothy, it says, But now, but know this, hard times will come in the last days. Know this, that hard times will come in the last days. So whenever I say last days to you guys, what comes to mind? What, what starts, starts to flow in your mind? What do you know? What do you already believe? Why do you believe it? Can you demonstrate and articulate why you believe it? And do you live consistently with it? And as I said, this chapter starts with what is popularly used as a proof text for the future, our future of the world being difficult, which is compared, or which combined with verse 13 here, will grow worse and worse. The world, again, being the subject of this popular belief. But here, starting in verse 1, Paul says, hard times will come in the last days, and many extrapolate that the future, again, here, our future, we, that we are supposed to look and see if we are in to signal the second advent of Christ. This future of this world is nothing but dark except for the church and even John MacArthur, very well-versed man in scripture, he says that the church loses down here. So this is a lot of people. This is a very popular belief and this is uh, something that leads this person that holds to this 
to what he says, but do you know already some scripture that would kind of refute that? Or do you have scripture that would actually back that up? Again, what do you know? What do you believe? Do you know it? Can you articulate it? Do you live in light of it? I can think of one. What did Jesus say about his church? He's building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail, right? So that's kind of a little question mark. He's not a bad guy, but we all make mistakes. We all get messed up. We all get little worldviews that we end up throwing it in on the text and say, see, but see, we need to really understand the text. But the thing is, is I don't need to ask you what you believe and then put it in on the text and go, oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, what... We need to understand what a Timothy, was, was this letter written to us, or was this a Paul to Timothy letter? So it was written to Timothy, so we need to understand what Timothy would have understood, right? And so we see in this letter that Paul was confident in his familiarity with the, and, and knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, the grapha, which is the Greek used uh, for the scriptures in 315, the Old Testament scriptures, he knew them, he was familiar with them. So what would he have understood about the last days? And so he's from infancy. He was familiar with these things. And so if we go to the Old Testament, just to give you one, and I'll give you some to write down to take home to read, but just think about Isaiah 2 and what it says about the last days. He would have known this. He would have been familiar. So he's seeing this this pessimism in the last times, but he would be like, Isaiah 2 says, Now it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his path. The nations are asking for this. For the law, the Torah, will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between nations, and will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. He knew this about the last days. And then he's seeing this hard times as well in the last days, and So again, Timothy would know this stuff. He would know about this future optimism in the last days. And just to add another little piece here, Peter in Acts 2, whenever it's the day of Pentecost, Jesus has ascended. He said, wait in Jerusalem. You'll see what the promise of God happened, and it happens. The people of the area that are seeing this happen, they're like, what is going on? Are you guys drunk? And he's like, no, they're not. This is what Joel 2 said, right? He quotes Joel 2 in Acts 2 in that description of the day of Pentecost. And he said that the last days prophesied in Joel 2 were upon them then, as evidenced by the pouring out of the Spirit on all flesh, which is seen in that that the gospel goes to all nations. And this optimism also does come with some negatives. As the quotation from Joel 2 states, the darkening of the sun, moon, and stars in those same last days. Again, that Peter says is then. So the problem today is that we've only believed, many have only believed a half-truth that leads people to believe a whole untruth about the future. 
and it gets placed in the scripture, which says nothing like the commentators say. So, for example, I have this one commentary by John Salehammer, his compact Bible commentary, and it states of verse 13 that the people and imposters that will become worse, deceiving and being deceived, it says they'll become more numerous. Is that in the text? Also, I read another one that said that uh, the increase of evil, there will be an increase in evil with moral and social conditions trending from bad to worse. Who trends from bad to worse in the text? Where is it in the text? That's what we got to know. God has spoken in the text. So is this biased conjecture? Is there anything else given here to do this, or is this from the text? It's not. It's not in the text, and the funny thing is, the ironic thing is, doesn't this letter tell Timothy to rightfully divide the word of truth? So that's the irony. So, now that we're kind of right here, let's talk about the hard times in the last days. So, if we read the passage, the the part within the whole of the letter, and then take all of what Paul has taught, and then you place that with the law and the prophets and the other apostles, you know, the whole Bible, that's, you know, that's, that's the way Timothy would have to do it. Didn't he know Paul's teaching? Didn't he also already know the Old Testament? And that's what Paul told him to believe in and to act from. Then why do we get away with anything else, you know, and anything less? So we, we need to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. And that, that's what Timothy would have to do, so should we. So let's take on this passage that says, avoid hope and continue. It says, but know this, hard times will come in the last days, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, holy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness, but denying its power. That is a laundry list of evil. And so when you see hard times and last days, and you see that, you're going, everything's horrible, right? You immediately go there. You've got to keep reading. That's a beautiful thing. But is this presenting anything new? Do you see this now? Yeah. You don't, you don't think Timothy did? You don't think Paul did? You don't think Jesus did? You don't think uh, John the Baptist did? You don't think uh, Malachi and Amos and Isaiah and, well, we know what Adam and Eve did and what ensued after that. Is this anything new? Are our hard hard times anything new? And so the thing is, if we think about it, this is a way off in the future prophecy. Why, Why should Timothy have to be concerned? But this is not prophecy of a way off future blanket statement world here. This is the then problems that Paul faced that he was then saying will continue for Timothy as he continues the ministry of the gospel, especially as Paul will be on his way out. He won't have Paul as a crutch anymore. That's even scarier. I don't have my guy, my father in the faith. I'm losing him. Again, we can call this covenantal continuity, and this can be likened to what God says about the post-flood world under the Noahic covenant. In Genesis 8, it says, I will never again curse the ground. Remember the, Adam cur- the, the post-fall curse, right? That, that happened, and he said, I will curse the ground. He said, I will no longer curse the ground. So discontinuity between covenants. Because of, man, because of human beings, even though the inclination of their heart is evil from youth onward. Continuity. 
and I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done, which is the promise, the blessing, the covenant thing there. So Kenneth Gentry um, is another theologian that I love to read about these things, um, and he calls these episodic hard times, only just episodes of hard times. So these episodes are not a mark to know. They're just what's going to happen. So not as, it's not as scary when you start losing these words that we've built upon things to put fear into people. But Paul, again, had his, his more recent episodes of hard times. He speaks of two people, Hermenius and Philetus, in chapter 2, 17 and 18, who embody this hard times warning as hard times are because people make hard times. Again, we don't blame systems and all that. No, we blame the people that create them, right? It's evil people that create the hard times. Again, people will be lovers of self and the whole laundry list to where they're holding a form of godliness but denying its power. How about cultural Christianity now? Right? They, they like the looks. They like the status, but they don't care about the power of it. And it's of these... Remember, them then, it's of these people. So Paul starts to make a distinction. He says, of them, these people that bring hard times, for among this people are people who come and worm their way into households and deceive gullible women, overwhelmed by sins and led astray by a variety of passions, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And this matches up with the two that he mentioned, because it's they who have departed from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and are ruining the faith of some. It's nothing new. So I must stress that again, the last days are not a future to us thing, as the popular blanket statement, future last days pessimism should start, and it should start being dissolved now because we're submitting that idea to the text. Is it in the text? This is God spoken. Is it there? If it's not, he didn't speak it. So what does the text really say? Let's, get into the, let's just get into the text. This is what we love. We love God's word. What does it say? And again, it says, avoid, hope, continue. And then starting um, from one, verse 1 through 5 in, in uh, chapter 3 here, it says that these people should be avoided, which presupposes that they what? They can be avoided. <laughs> He's saying you can avoid them. They are not inescapable or all out overpowering, they might kill you. Cool, but you have life in Christ already, so nothing bad there. But they're not going to be overpowering. And the why will provide more insight here. But the word avoid comes from apotrepo, which is a hopox legomenon. I, I love using big words, but I like to give them to you so that I can explain them, and so then you can have them too. I'm, I'm sharing. But it's a, it's a word that's only used once in the scriptures. So you don't have any other scriptures to compare the use of the word or whatever. But we know Greek, at least Greek scholars know Greek, and it's a compound word of, it's, a, see, it's apo and a trope, which would be from or away from and turn. It says turn away from these one through five people. And that's, that's all it is. So avoid, turn away from. Uh, some, some translations use the word shun. And there's, so now we've got to ask, though, it says avoid these people, these one through five people, these horrible, wicked people. And now I'm thinking, is there a bit of a contradiction here, though? Because prior to this, Paul tells Timothy to instruct his opponents. And in the next chapter, he's told to do the work of the evangelist. Shouldn't he step in to these people? 
Call them to repentance? Give them the gospel? Surely not avoid them. But as I said, if you read the first letter in conjunction with this, we see what Paul did with Hymenius and Alexander. We're talking about Hymenius again in this letter, but it's Hymenius and Alexander this time in the first letter. And so what did Paul do with them? Church discipline. So this kind of gives us a clearer picture of avoid them, what does this mean, what kind of people they are. And then also, Paul also talked this way in chapter 4, um, 1 through 7 in 1 Timothy, and I'll read that here real quick. Now, um, if you haven't read these two together, here's the astonishment. We're going through three. We already know what it started to say, but it says in chapter 4, now the Spirit expressly says, so he's talked, the Spirit's talked before, it says, explicitly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Though through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared, they forbid marriage, they demand abstinence from foods created by God. So again, they're teaching false doctrines, they're false teachers, avoid them, shun them, get them out, don't let them in. So this provides the clarity. This is scripture interpreting scripture, that means God is interpreting himself. And there's, that's the only safe way to do this. So now we know what we're talking about um, because of that. So the avoidance of these verse 1 through 5 people is because for among them, as Paul continues in, in, in the third chapter of 2 Timothy, for among them are those who worm their way into households and deceive gullible women overwhelmed by sins, led astray by a variety of passions, always learning and never being able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So again, there's that distinction that out of these one through five people, there are evangelistic ones who go after the most vulnerable with apostate teaching. Timothy must avoid them. He must shun them, turn away from them. They're them as people and their teachings who have believed because of hypocrite liars. Again, if they are on the outside, keep them out. If they're on the inside, kick them out is what he's saying. And to add, this was not just a Paul to Timothy problem. This is also, if you look in Peter and John's writings, these are the false teachers of 2 Peter 2 and Antichrist in 1 John 2, 18 through 23, 4, 3, and 2 John 7 through 11. This is Antichrist. They were already around. They were doing these things. They were picking people off. That's the Antichrist, if you want to go with the biblical definition. This is what he's talking about. They're all talking about the same thing, they're not using the same term, but they're all false teachers. They're all antichrist. They're all doing the same thing. And he says, don't fear, Timothy. Turn away. Shun. Avoid them. That's all he's saying. And they can be. And so this is the application of protecting the flock, as he was told, and church discipline. And you think that, Yo, well, should I go after them? Should I go after them? Well, we're going to keep on going on here, is because you can just leave them. Just leave them. Worry about your flock, leave them. And we go down because there's hope. There's hope in all these things here. So as we go in from uh, verse 6 through 9, there's hope. So even though in this then last days hard times, Paul starts to blend in hope that cast out fear, the covenant faithfulness of God. And this is that implicit thing I was telling you about. This is the implicit hope. And explaining it this way provides evidence 
for it. The hope being the redemptive historical precedent of God's covenant faithfulness. As he goes on to say, just as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so these also resist the truth. They are men who are corrupt in mind and worthless in, as, or in regard to the faith, but they will not make further progress. For their foolishness will be clear to who? All. Just as Janice and Jambres. So we have something, a historical, actual event that happened that we can compare this thing to now, right? That's what he's telling the Timothy. We, this has already been done. So these hard times were created by two people who forgot, or created by people who forgot God. So again, just think about this is a historical precedent, precedent that he utilizes. It's a snapshot or an episode of hard times that took place because people forgot God after all he did through Joseph. Remember, they saw Joseph. They saw the blessing. They saw what a man of God is like and what God does through his people. But they forgot especially the new Pharaoh, who was a supposed god, and his magician priest, which Jewish tradition names Janus and Jambres, and Paul, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, brings in this, these two names from that tradition. And that's cool. We know their names. And Timothy's apostate evangelists that can, that can be and must be avoided are likened to these two magicians and what went down as Moses and Aaron were being faithful to God and his word, his commands, in confronting Pharaoh, as they were told to do in Exodus. Just like the at-the-time successes, which were actually only partial successes, which were actually whole unsuccesses of the magicians to copy the signs of Aaron, God firstly showed to be greater. So God allowed them to do their magic. He told Aaron to throw down, like one of them was he told Aaron to throw down his staff, right? And it turned into a snake. The magicians were like, hey, we got this thing. They threw down, see? Look, everybody, we can do it. Who are these guys? And then what happened? The snake ate theirs, right? God's like, I am greater. And why did they, how were they even able to do that? God let them do that so they could be humiliated in their pride against him. But then what happened? They got cut off. They, were, they had boils all over themselves, suffering all the plagues. We can't do anything else. God cut them off. Again, God is greater. There's hope here. Just like them, the wicked hard times creators that Timothy will experience will not make further progress and will be exposed for what they are and by all, as Paul says. Now, you might not want to, like, you might not be able to grasp it. You're like, no way. I was even reading Calvin, and he was like, it's not all. <laughs> and I'm like, Calvin got to, like, I love you, dude, but this is where I've got to disagree with you. Because, again, it's not in the text. So even Calvin is susceptible to, to, to things that are, are mistaken. You know, it's fine. Um, we all got the text. God's truth endures. But they will be exposed for what they are. And so here's the hope. The hope is sharing in, is while, is the, this is the hope in sharing in the suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God, as Paul exhorted Timothy to do in chapter 1, 8, which is likened to the suffering of Moses against those who resisted the truth he spoke from God while suffering the plagues.
and just understand that God does work in history, like now. He does judge in history if he wants to. Ultimately, though, if something gets slipped through the cracks, there is justice, and we don't have to get mad. That's the cool thing about the gospel. We know that God's going to have justice, so we don't have to get mad now if something slips through the cracks, but we also need to recognize it's not just put off to the future. It can happen now, and it does happen now. Corinthians, or second, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about Jesus ruling and reigning right now, destroying his, his enemies right now. So we know that happens now and not just in the future. So what is he saying here? He's saying, don't fear, Timothy. They will not, not make further progress. And then Paul, as we continue, he connects the dots from the Exodus to himself to advise Timothy to continue. Verses 10 through 16. So as he continues in the text, but you have followed my teaching. But you, Timothy, you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecutions and sufferings that came to me in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Paul is saying, don't fear Timothy, you already have this. Continue. Timothy had already followed Paul's example, which led to suffering already in his life, and that this is the life of any who would follow Christ. This should, again, make Timothy, again, recall what Paul had already told him in the first letter. If you look in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, Paul had already told Timothy about these people and times and told him to point these things out to the brothers to be a good servant of Jesus. He's like, you better warn. Again, like Ezekiel, watchman, right? You, you, you have knowledge. If you see something, you better do something. You better teach these things because remember, if you don't warn, I'm taking your blood. Their blood will be upon you. You warn them. That's what, this is severe stuff. It's not light and fluffy. And so, therefore, Timothy was commanded in 4.11 to teach these things. And the teaching was what he already knew from the scriptures and Paul. And, it's, and, and, and what he was already following. And so he was just to be an example in practicing these things. Why? So if you look in chapter 4, again, of First Timothy, why? Because he was going to make progress. His progress would be seen by who? All. So who makes the progress? So in summation in this text, it says evil people and imposters will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. And then we have the big Pauline butt. I love that. My kids love that. The big Pauline butt. <laughs> I love my boy and my girl there. But anyway, you have the big Pauline button. Like we, that's a very awesome word to see in Scripture because usually dark, 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 dark. I feel horrible, horrible. I'm feeling the weight of sin. But, and then it's usually something awesome, right? So here's, this, here's the something awesome. But as for you, continue. You can continue. You've been doing it. You can continue. You can avoid. 
They will make no further progress. This is all it's saying. You can continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know these who taught you. And you know that from infancy you've known the sacred scriptures. Again, the graphic. He's talking about the Old Testament. They didn't have the full New Testament. Maybe he had access to some other, like the, you know, some other gospels or some other text. But he definitely had Paul's teachings. He's talking about that. And it's these Old Testament texts he's saying are consistent to Christ. Just as Christ said, if you reject Moses, you're rejecting me because Moses spoke of me. Right? You, you own, they only needed the Old Testament to get to Jesus. And it's this scripture. He says, Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So again, who has the progress? Does wickedness have the progress? Do wicked men have the progress? No. They will make no further progress, is what God has said through Paul. They are the only ones to proceed from bad to worse. Not the world, not moral social conditions, as the commentators say, as people will place on us to really gets a lot of guilt, a lot of fear, and are we supposed to fear? No. We have been given a spirit of love, power, and what? Sound judgment. Why? Because we have the word of God. So they're the only ones that will proceed from bad to worse, and they're deceiving and being deceived. But it will be Timothy and all who follow his example of the ultimate example of Jesus. And this is because he knows the scriptures. He has already been walking according to them. Do not fear. Continue. The inspired, inerrant, authoritative, clear, and sufficient, God-breathed word, is, and it's the standard, it's the standard of all of life. As God has said, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I sent it to do. Isaiah 55, 11. It says in 46, 10 of Isaiah, I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place and I will do all my will. Isn't that hopeful? And it's this covenant word that, though hard times still continue, produced by wicked men in the new covenant era, especially ones who have denied Jesus Christ, who has made evident through his appearing, we see that, his appearing, that's his first advent, because of what he did there, he made evident that he has abolished death and that he has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, and these people reject it. But it gives us hope in our times to continue to look forward to, especially remembering that word from Isaiah 2 and all the other Old Testament last days optimism that we know that we are headed to because Jesus. So in the last days, or that in, that in the last days, not on the last day or after, there is coming a time where all nations will stream to God, learn from him, and learn to live in peace. That is our hope. And as it was prophesied, I, this, is, this is the beautiful thing about what's prophesied. When Jesus was born, it was prophesied over him in Luke. 
but it's a prophecy from Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Listen to this. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Seed to tree kingdom. He's described that. There is nothing but hope, even in hard times. Hard times, cataclysm stuff, that's not our end. That's not what's happening. And again, it says in the last days, not on the last day, not after them. So in conclusion, as this uh, teaching has been commanded by God to be taught by God's called leadership to the saints, this also comes down to us, the saint. So what, is, what, is, what are our commands from Paul here that we've got to follow? Avoid, hope, and you got, you're listening. <laughs> so here's the deal. What you see out there, it's we don't hope to escape as unscathed as possible as we wait to be with the Lord. Because again, what do partial truths lead to? They lead to whole untruths, and this would cut the whole spirit of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. What do we do? Though we want to be with the Lord, though we to be absent from the bodies to be with the Lord, but as we're home in the body, what do we do? We serve the Lord. We do his will. We do his word. So we need to stop cutting scripture in half for our benefit. We need to stop wanting to escape. That's why people do drugs. That's why do people do sinful actions because they're actually trying to escape and they need us to actually not want to escape. So we go up to them like, there's no need to escape, there's hope. But if all we have is a message like, we're just living this life and surviving, what do you have that the evolutionist isn't already saying? You have nothing different. You just have Jesus attached to it, and that's what makes it cool. So are you going to give them hope? Are you going to be able to show them hope here in the text, in the message of Christ? So the avoidance that we do is a move of fighting and building, participating with the continued mission of God in Christ that he has already made known and that he continues to do. And it's this heaven and earth work, okay? We can't even dissect like, well, this is all happening in heaven and we're just waiting for heaven to finally spill out here. No, this is happening now. Jesus is in heaven. We are here. He said that I'm coming. And he said that the Father and me will come. And that was, again, for the day of Pentecost. We're dwelled by the Spirit of Christ. Christ is here. He is with us. He is doing work down here now. While he, well, and that, that's his presence here through the Spirit but he's actually physically up in the throne doing his thing up there, praying for us, all that kind of stuff. I know I, stood, I was up there and asking you guys, do you realize that Christ prayed for you? And that, his, that what he gets, he gets what he wants when he asks the Father, right? So this is going to happen here. This is what's happening here. And this is heaven and earth work, which is our hope that we are to continue in down here because of what's going on up there simultaneously. Again, just like the song that we sang by Martin Luther. What are we singing it in the mighty fortress? Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? But we're striving, why? Because the right man is on our side. The God's choice man 
is on our side, and that is Jesus. And what? He must win the battle. And at the same time, the next verse that comes with, it wasn't in the, uh, the version tonight, but everybody has a different version because Luther wrote tons of stanzas for that. So you go and re- look up the whole, whole shebang, um, or we could be all here all night singing it. <laughs> That's good to kind of lessen it to give me more time to talk because <laughs> I will sure fill it up. <laughs> but anyway, but he goes on in that, in that second verse. It's, and though this world with devils filled shall threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to be witnessed through us or just endure, survive through us, or what? It's God's will that his truth will triumph through us. Victory will happen because he is with us and in us. It doesn't happen without Jesus, but it'll happen because Jesus is where he is. We are where we are. God is doing what he's doing and has done what he's done. So both our truth and what has been proclaimed by God in the scriptures is for us to believe. And so we must believe this. So back to what I asked at the very beginning, but let's make this more generalized. It's not just about eschatology. What do you believe? Why do you believe it? Do you know it? Can you articulate it? Because you're going to need it. Why? Hard times are going to come, and you're going to have to be able to discern. But how versed are you in the scriptures? How versed are you in the Old Testament? And it's okay. You can say, I don't know much. That's what this church thing's for. That's what your pastor's for. That's what getting together in your homes, bringing people into your homes is for. Exhort one another. Love one another. You can't love somebody and not give them the Bible. You can't love yourself and not give yourself the Bible. Exhort one another. thing is, you're going to have to get knowledgeable about this stuff because you need to discern. You need to love your neighbor by loving God this way. And if you don't know the scriptures, you're not going to know how to love neighbor. God's given us examples. Yes, He's given the Spirit to us to where we can, we'll do these things too, but we'll know them at the same time by living in the Spirit and knowing what the Spirit has said. Because you're, you're still sinful. So you still might think you're doing something nice when you're really actually hurting someone. Um, because you're going to read the Scripture and go, oh, I'm actually hurting that person. Because they're not going to contradict. So the other big thing is with these commands to avoid, to hope and continue, are you willing to do them? Are you willing to grow in your knowledge so that you know to avoid? Are you willing to hope in, are you, it seems like today people like to love, if they don't have something to complain about, they'll complain about not being able to complain because they want to complain. And so it seems like it comes out in our eschatology. We want the world to burn. You know who wanted the world to burn? Jonah. (laughs) He he was sent to a Gentile nation. He was a Jewish dude, Hebrew dude. He hated the Gentiles. That's why he didn't want to go. And then when they repented, he was still ticked off at God about it. And we're like that. We don't want the like. We want we want to repent. We want to be saved. We don't want other people to be. And we want the world to burn. Think about that. That's our eschatology. That's the popular eschatology. Just ready to go hell in the handbasket. Jesus loves his, God loves the world, right? That he sent his only son. 
And so you'll have people like taking the other verse out, well, I'm, I hate the world. It's like, how about world systems? That mean, there's much more meaning that we've got to dissect, right? But if God loves the world and tells us to hate the world, then what's going on there? No, he loves his creation. He made it. And he's going to what? Reconcile everything in Jesus Christ to himself. That's his, the goal. And so we understand how we are to love the world. How are we to hate the world? How are we to love for one another? How we are to love him and hate our family. I mean, those words are used, but there's a purpose if we dig. You gotta, do you know these things? Because these are the questions that people use as red herrings to keep themselves out of churches. They're like, that doesn't make sense, so I'm not going to come to Christ. It's like, yeah, that's not going to work. You're going you're gonna, to, like, if you don't repent, you're going to be rendered excuseless on the day of judgment. And so, are, are we going to learn this stuff so that we can teach others? Are we going to make disciples who make disciples? Are we going to live this great commission life or not? And this is the big question. And the big thing is, is Jesus enough? Is Jesus worth all of this? Again, is he the pearl that you're willing to give everything up for to keep? And also, do you hope because of the gospel? Kind of hit on that. And it's, you should because fear is only for those who are going to experience God's wrath. So if you are fearing the future because of the gospel, that's a problem. So, and it's one of those things that we have been given repentance. This is not a gotcha moment. Jesus is humble and lowly. He will not break a bruised reed, right? And so, if you find yourself just in trouble, you don't have to, you can be humble about it. Like, I don't understand something. I, don't, I, I can't do this. But then be humble enough to learn so that you can continue, so that we can do this whole disciple-making church thing that we are called to do, which is a wonderful work to do. And so, with all of this being said, let's repent where we need to repent, and then let's avoid hope and continue. Soli Deo Gloria.